morning, church. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Uh, as we're going to uh, do our sermon today on our last part of evangelism. Uh, and as you know, all of the sessions that we've done are online, so you can go back to the beginning if you want to be a part and get this and be prepared to go out, because this is all about what Jesus has commanded us to do. Go out and make disciples of the lost. And so that's what we're re responsible to do, and that's what I've endeavored to do in this sermon series. And so today, this sermon is entitled, Five Questions Unbelievers Ask. And I want you to be prepared for these questions, because these are typically the questions that will come up. You need to be prepared. Uh, don't sit there and look dumb, but be able to respond with an answer. Uh, and that's what this is all about. And so before I begin this, this sermon today, I wanted to focus briefly on a recent survey that speaks about the state of the evangelical church in America, and it's not good. This is a state of theology survey that was released by Ligonier uh, Ministries uh, along with Lifeway, and you know Lifeway's a big part of the Southern Baptist Church, so you can recognize that they did an in-depth survey. Uh, and so what they found before they focused on just the evangelicals, they focused on the fact that 53% of, of people now do not believe that the Bible is literally true. Imagine that. 53% of the population do not believe that the Bible is true. And so what you see here is that our cultural views have taken over our theological views. We, we ascribe... Uh, to views in the culture that we think God wants, uh, and they're so far out of line that it's sad. And so I want to focus now on what they found in that survey because it's very discomforting. For example, what they found is in terms of, of evangelicals is that first, more than 56%, 56% of evangelicals affirm the fact that there is more than one way to God than Jesus. 56% of evangelicals. What is that about? Uh, this is clearly not supported by the Bible. This is why we teach in this church what we do. Jesus couldn't have been more clear in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. I preach that at every funeral. Wherever you go, be prepared to say that verse. It's not your opinion it's the Bible. It's what Jesus taught. Secondly, uh, a surprising percentage, 73% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by God. 73% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by God. This is absurd. Jesus is God. He is equal to God in every way. From the beginning, he was part of the Trinity. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, the Bible is clear. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. Uh, you want to know what God is like? Look at me. You'll see me. You'll see God. And so I'm giving you this because you need to be aware of how out of line our churches have become. They're not being taught right. And I'm hoping that you people will go out in the world uh, and affix this damage. Third, uh, Jesus is not God and was not merely a teacher. 43% of evangelicals believe that. Jesus is not God. He was just a great teacher. 
This is another form of heresy. I believe that this is what Satan would like. You know, if he couldn't defeat Christ at the cross, how much better could it be to infiltrate the people and have the theology of the people become so fractured that it has nothing to do with what God taught? That's what we're faced with. Uh, Then fourth, another false belief in the evangelical community is that the Holy Spirit is not a personal being. 60% of evangelicals surveyed had confusion about this, and they believe that the Holy Spirit is not a personal being. Well, let me make it very clear to you. The Holy Spirit is a personal being. There are three parts of the Trinity. Uh, And the fact that that the evangelical church has deviated from this truth shows you the extent of the damage being done. And lastly, humans are not sinful by nature. Well, 57%, yeah, 57% of evangelicals said that people are good by nature. And all I would say is take two babies... Put them in a crib, put one toy down, walk away for three minutes and come back and see one kid being beaten up by the other. (laughs) And you tell me about the fact of how we are inherently good. I mean, this is so sad. And by the way, if you're asking me how did they define evangelicals, uh, the definition was adopted by Lifeway, a national association as follows. And it was respondents were considered evangelical by belief if they strongly agreed in the Bible as the highest authority and the importance of encouraging non-Christians to trust in Jesus. What? I mean, are you kidding me? And these are the people who say what, what I've just given you? We, we have to pray that God intersects what's going on in this world. That's why we preach what we preach in this church. I want to basically be, have you be armed to go out into the parking lots and the streets and straighten people out. Speak with love uh, about what God would have us do. So now I want to focus on the five questions unbelievers ask. You need to be prepared. God wants you to be prepared. I told you this before in another sermon that you need to have a soundbite about why you are a Christian. If somebody says to you, why, why are you a Christian? Don't just sit there and go, uh, I don't, I, my parents, uh, I, they're good people. You know, you've seen it. Instead, I want you to say, because Jesus Christ entered my heart and changed me forever. You understand? You need to be prepared to give the answer. Uh, don't sit there with a goofy look on your face. All right? Uh, and so uh, look what Paul said to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How about that? Be prepared. Be approved by God. Be ready to serve God. This is what God wants you to do. We need to arm ourselves, you see, when we go out into the world and share our faith with others because questions are going to be raised. 1 Peter 3 speaks about this also. And there, 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. And let me emphasize that last part. 
gentleness, and respect. And I'll add love. When people begin to engage you in this process, you need to do it lovingly, uh, with gentleness, uh, to show them that you care. But be prepared for the reason that you have the hope in your heart. Be prepared. And being prepared means you do it in advance. Now, the word Peter used uh, for answer here comes from the Greek word apologia. Uh, and, And that does not mean we apologize for our faith. It means we defend our faith. And that's what it's about. Uh, Christianity is a very logical, theological system. And it goes back, really, it's understanding what God wanted from us to the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, you see the heart of God as he's preparing us for these assignments. Because it says there from the prophet, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I love that phrase. Let us settle the matter. Let us talk about this. Let us be prepared. And so we need to remember that we are a bridge to the lost. God is calling us as a messenger of the faith. We need to lovingly and gracefully engage the lost. Look at 2 Timothy uh, 2, verse 24 as it speaks specifically about the kind of conduct we need. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Isn't that a beautiful set of verses. They have to come to their senses. You have been given the life preserver to give to them. They need to hear it from someone, and God has designated you the someone. Here's the thing. We want to dialogue with the people. You've heard me say that I'm interested in bringing people from the sidewalk into the church. I understand that there are people out on the sidewalk that don't look like us, that don't speak like us, that don't think like us, that have an entirely different spiritual view. But here's the thing, church, we're not going to change them if we leave them out on the sidewalk. The only way they're going to be changed is if they hear the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit inside the church. And so you see how Jesus did this with the Samaritan woman at the well. He engaged her in a dialogue. And I would say that's what you need to do. Try to find a way to engage in dialogue when you come upon friends or associates uh, who really don't know the Lord. Jesus did that with the Samaritan woman. And when you engage them in dialogue, you will find that you'll have an opportunity. Now, you need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit uh, when you do this. And you need to ask God to give you discernment as well. Now, he adapted his conversation with the Samaritan woman, which was quite different from his conversation with Nicodemus. So he's meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, and he speaks to her about giving her water forever that she will never thirst. And then he tells her about his life, her life, that she's been married seven times before, now living with a man that's not her husband, uh, because he's showing him who, her who he is. And then he reveals, really, for the first time that we know of in spoken words, I am the Messiah to this woman 
who was lost. You see it. Then you see how he engaged Nicodemus in an entirely different way, uh, in which he told Nicodemus, who was the greatest teacher in all of Israel, the top rabbi, that he needed to be born again. You know who I am. As we say in New Jersey, you talking to me? You talking to me, Jesus? Yeah, I'm talking to you. Yeah, I'm talking to you because I know you. I know your heart. You need to be born again. Uh, and so you see it. Then, then you see the, the uh, wealthy ruler that came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit life, eternal life? Well, Jesus saw through the questions. There wasn't any sincerity in that question, and Jesus engaged him in a dialogue. He didn't answer that question, and he, instead he said, why do you call me good? There is none good other than the Father. He was drawing him out, you see, giving him a chance to talk to see where his heart was. Uh, and so when you have these opportunities, you might be prepared. So if someone says to you, what makes you think Jesus uh, was great? Uh, because I, I think he was just a moral teacher. And you might want to say, well, uh, have you read his teachings? And obviously the answer is No. They haven't read his teachings, but that gives you a chance to begin to have a dialogue. Uh, and, and then somebody else will say, well, why, why does God send people to hell? And then you'll say, well, do you, do you believe in hell? And then when you get that answer, that's going to open up a whole other series of questions that you can engage with someone. Uh, and so I've prepared for you what I believe are the five most prominent difficult questions, this is based on theological study, that the unchurched will ask you. First, how do you know that the Bible is the word of God? This is like number one. Uh, it was written by men and full of contradictions. I love that. What contradictions? The people that give you this have never opened the Bible, all right? They're parroting what they've heard culturally from other people. Uh, and so the quick answer for that is that the Bible is not one book. It's 66 separate books written over 1,500 years by 41 different men on three different continents. How about that? But here's the thing. One continuous unified theme, and that is God's redemption of humanity inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you need to understand this, that yes, the hand of men were responsible in writing the words, but the Holy Spirit of God took those pens and wrote the Bible. Every word that is in the Bible is the inspired word of God. You need to be prepared for that. Uh, and so here, here's a good explanation of why God has given us the Bible in terms of the redemption of humanity. It's Second Peter chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the Apostle Peter telling you firsthand how prophecy took place. It's not because somebody got up in the middle of the night and had a dream or a thought. 
Instead, it was the inspired word of God coming through to them, using their lips and uttering. And I pray that as we deliver sermons today to this church and we bow to God in humility, that it's the same way. Yes, I may have written this, but when it's delivered, it has to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I would say the proof of that is if this is touching your heart. If you find that as I'm preaching this, your heart is going, amen, amen, amen. That's God. You see, that's God. That's not man. And so the other thing about proving the Bible as it is, is it gives us the experience, the truth of what it claims to be. The Bible has told us that if we accept Christ, our sins will be washed away. We will be forgiven. The Bible shows us that, and in its truth, our guilt is removed. How else can guilt be removed other than by trusting in the Bible and trusting Jesus Christ? The Bible says that if I come to Christ, I will become a new person. My life will be changed. Well, guess what? It's true. This church is filled with people that could get up and testify to that very thing. All right? The Bible proves itself. Now, we also know that the Bible is confirmed by science. Science isn't at opposition with the Bible. It's that man has not gone far enough with science to understand God. Because here's the thing. We heard in the Bible from the beginning that we could not count the stars. Well, guess what? As we launch into space and build bigger and bigger telescopes, what do we find? We can't count the stars. Oh, that's a shock. All right, we only knew about that 2,000 years ago because it says it in the Bible. Uh, then, here's the other thing. Uh, the Bible told us uh, that what is seen was created by God now of what is visible. How about that? What is seen was created by God out of what is not visible. And guess what science finds? Matter is made up of invisible energy. Well, how about that? Science, again, Bible confirms it. Now, the Bible also confirms archaeology through archaeology. You know, they, they doubted crucifixion as a form of death. But in 1968, uh, archaeologists found the remains of a man crucified just north of Jerusalem. It's true. Crucifixion was a, a way of death. They also doubted the existence of a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. It doesn't exist. It's a fake. It's made up until an inscription was found in Caesarea Maritima in 1968. How about that? 2,000 years later, confirming that he, he existed. Similarly, there was no record of a high priest named Caiaphas, you know, who was directly involved in, in the death of Jesus. And yet, 1990, his tomb was found. And so in every one of these cases, the Bible proves to be what it has, what it does, and what it says. Now, here's the thing. One half of the prophecies in the Bible have already proven true. One half. One half. One half to come. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was predicted to be born in Bethlehem. He was predicted to have a forerunner who would announce his coming. Uh, he was predicted to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He was predicted to have his, wound, his hands wounded in death. And he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was proven, he was prophesied, to have his garments gambled about 
All of that was written in Scripture 700 years before he would be born. And if you were to cover the state of Texas with silver dollars, all right, two feet thick, uh, and put one X on one silver dollar, you would have a better chance of pulling that out of the ground than having all these prophecies being confirmed as chance. There is no chance. The Bible is clear. Another question frequently asked is, how could a God of love allow suffering? Have you heard this? How could a God of love allow suffering? You know, when 9-11 came, that was a question you heard on the news. You know, this is a way to rip God. Uh, And so our notions of human fairness uh, reject the apparent contradiction of a loving God in a world of pain. Uh, Our general tendency, you see, is to blame God for all of the suffering and pain and evil in the world. Uh, And here's the answer. In the most broad sense, disability, sickness, and even death are the result of sin, not a result of God. You need to understand this. You need to convey it. Adam and Eve were never intended to die. They were intended to live forever and have communion with God in the Garden of Eden. Look at Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Humanity is responsible for death, all right, brought about by Satan. Humanity is responsible for pain and suffering. Sin in its purest form in every way. And so you know, and 9-11 happened, how could this happen? How could God allow 3,000 innocent people to die? Well, you know what? If you had read your Bible, Jesus answered that question 2,000 years ago. And his disciples asked him that because there was a situation where 18 innocent people uh, were in a tower and the tower collapsed and all 18 people were killed. Uh, and so Jesus then responds to that question in Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 4 and 5, when they asked him that. Um, he, asked with a, he answered it with a rhetorical question. Jesus said, do you think they, those 18, were more guilty than all the others living in, in Jerusalem? I tell you, No. But unless you repent, you too will perish. You are all sinners. You are all subject to death. You are all dead men walking. Yes, those 18 people just died, but you're just in the same way. Don't single them out. They didn't do any special sin. They walk in a lifetime of sin because they haven't given their hearts to God. Uh, And so we need to understand that God can use sickness disability, and even tragedy to correct us. Look at Psalm 22, verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Have you thought about that? Your rod, your rod comforts me. The very aspect that you have of disciplining the sheep, the rod of protecting the sheep, that comforts me, knowing that you're there. Yes, I understand from time to time I may, I may receive discipline, Uh, I may receive pain. I may receive suffering, but you are 
at the end of the day, lifting me up and comforting me. And so when sickness and suffering or tragedy or hardship comes into our lives, you see, we should ask the Lord, if is he trying to tell me something? Are you speaking to me, Father? Is there some message that I need to hear from you? Sometimes suffering is allowed so that God will be glorified. You understand that? That God will be glorified. Question number three, how can you Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God? That's a pretty familiar one, right? What's wrong with you Christians? What do you think? You're so high and mighty? You have the only answer? You know, it's funny. I had a, a uh, Orthodox Jewish lawyer who I was friendly with who uh, took me aside one day. He used to like to discuss uh, theology with me, and he was a very intelligent man. Uh, and, and he said, you know, John, you know what the difference between you and me is? He said, you have grace. Oh, my God, I said. I can't believe a Jew is saying this to me. You have grace. But he put his finger on it. That's right. We have the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what separates us. We have taken the Jewish faith, which they marched down the football field to the five-yard line. You understand? Did everything right. And then at the five-yard line, they walked off the field. And instead, the star fullback comes in named Jesus Christ. He takes the ball and he goes over the line. You understand? You understand? That's the difference between our faiths. We have completed what God started. We have completed through Jesus Christ what God started. You need to be prepared to give that answer to somebody because they need it. Jesus said it as well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. Folks, when the man, the only man who was buried for three days in a tomb, walked out of that tomb, defeated death, and walked around for 40 days so that 500 eyewitnesses says that, you better take that to the bank, okay? That's not just mere hypothesis. That is fundamental truth of God. Uh, and so Acts chapter 4, verse 12 clearly states it. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's that simple. There's only one, Jesus Christ. Be prepared for the question and be prepared for the answer. Question number four. How can a God of love send people to hell? You like that question? I've had that asked many times. How could a God of love? You're all about love. And yet, you tell me that God sends people to hell. Well, here's the first thing you know. God doesn't send anyone to hell. We go on our own. You understand? Fully prepared with blinders on. All right? We go on our own. God does everything possible to keep us from going, and yet we spit in the wind, we shake our fists, and we march directly on to hell. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting 
anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the patience and love of God. Yes, some of us have shaken our fists and walked against God. We're in open, adverse relationship to God for a lifetime, and yet he still gives us a chance. Do you ever think what you would do if you were God? When somebody repudiates you and shake your hands, I can tell you there'd be nobody left but a couple people. All right? I mean, that's the nature of humanity. We wouldn't put up with this. But God, in his infinite love, uh, has done this. And so no one goes to hell accidentally. No, no one. They go to hell because they repudiated what God has given them. They repudiated the Bible. They repudiated the message of Christ. And they go to hell, notwithstanding everything. And here's the thing. No one will be in heaven accidentally as well. You got that? There's no accidents coming to heaven. Oh, this was a a pure accident. No, no, no. The only reason you go to heaven is you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And now here's the last question. What about the people who have never heard the gospel? Have you heard that? It seems like that's the loss. They're very, very concerned. They're very concerned. What about those people in Africa? You've heard this, right? They're in the jungles. They've never heard the gospel. And you're telling me they're going to hell. How absurd. How absurd. But you have to have an answer. Uh, will God send people that have never heard the message of the gospel to hell? Absolutely not. What kind of God would that be? God will judge us based on the truth that we have received in our heart. We will not be held accountable for those things that we do not know. Yet, and let me repeat this, ignorance is not bliss. Don't sit there and think I'll stay in a state of ignorance. God will bless that. No, no. Instead, no matter where you live in this planet, uh, you are born with eternity in your heart. Now listen to this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. This is 700 years before Christ. It's there, there it says, He, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. He set eternity in the human heart. No one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. And there's a great verse that my father would use often when that question would come up. Uh, John 1, verse 9, where it speaks about Jesus. He is that light that lighteth the heart of of every man that cometh into the world. Jesus is the light that lighteth the heart of every man that cometh into the world. What does it mean? It means even if you don't know who he is, there is a responder in that heart that will ultimately tell you about Jesus. I don't care if you're in the jungles. I don't care if you're in darkest Africa. When you look up in the sky and you see the sun and you see the moon and you see the stars and you take in the very nature of creation, God speaks to your heart and you say there is some greater being than me. Amen, church? You need to understand that. And so there in Romans chapter 1, Verse 19, 
Paul says, so what, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are not without excuse. They are not. They are without excuse. That's what God is giving them. There are no excuses. You see the creation. Look, you don't worship the creation. You worship the creator. And that's what God has done. He has spoken to their hearts. So none of us are without an excuse. And so the real reason people don't come to Christ is not that that they don't know, but in fact, they do not want to be born again. Let's call it what it is. I like the way I live. I like my life. I like what I'm doing. I like to be in control of my things. You know, if I go along with you people, all of a sudden I've lost control. I can't have fun anymore. You can't have fun anymore. You mean you want to get up drunk? Uh, you want to get up and, and be disabused? You want, to, you want to have no friends? You want to be outside of the You like that? That's good? You're having a good time living like that? All right? Or instead, when you accept Jesus Christ, you find out that your life has changed forever. You will have the greatest amount of friends that you can have. You will be surrounded by the affirming love of God. That's what you have when you accept Jesus Christ, and your life will be changed forever. People prefer the darkness. They don't want to live in the life. And so that's your job. That's your responsibility. And so here's what the Bible says. John 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. That's the nature of this world. Satan has control of this world. These people are in bondage to sin and to Satan. They are in bondage to the darkness. They don't want the light. You represent the light, and so you, God is calling you. God is calling you to reach out and to bring the truth to the lost. Uh, Jesus talked about this in such a profound way in John three eighteen, and he said, whoever believes in him is not condemned. This is John speaking now. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Here's what you need to say to people when they tell you, well, I'm not prepared, really. I'm not prepared to make this decision. And your answer has to be no, no. No, actually, you have made a decision. You see, it's either yes or no. It's either black or white. You have made a decision. Your decision is you've rejected Christ. That's your decision. That's your right. But don't think that you philosophically can continue to migrate through life and continue to stand on the fence. No, 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 you're, you're not on the fence. You're on the other side of the fence. And God loves you and he wants to bring you into the light. And so here's the point, folks. I've spent five weeks preparing you to go out into the world and give people straight answers. 
Uh, it is our responsibility to give them these answers. God wants us to give them the truth. They need the truth. This world is basically covered in lies. All right? The culture has been dragged into darkness. When you read what I've given you in the beginning of this sermon about the state of the evangelical church in America, your heart has to be broken. But you have the authority to move out here today to make the right step, to change the lives of people. Look, God does not want us to judge people. God isn't calling you to be a fruit inspector. You understand that? He's not calling you to say, you're going to hell. You're a loser. But instead, God wants you to say, God loves you. He wants you to be part of the family of God. He wants to wrap his arms around you. He wants you to be forever with him in heaven. He wants you to be part of a community of believers. He wants you to be surrounded by love, by people that care about you, that people that will pray for you in every way. Not only does he want to prepare you for heaven, he wants you to prepare you for the rest of your life in this world. And there's only one way. Jesus Christ wants and forever, Jesus alone. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow as we close this word. Lord, I thank you for your word, Father. I thank you for the word that you've given us. I thank you for Christ. Now, Lord, I pray that our people who have heard this message now for five weeks, your word, are prepared, Father, to go out and speak this word to a lost world. Lord, we're going to come across people who don't know the truth. We're going to come across people who have questions. Father, help us to engage lovingly to people who need to hear the truth. And at the end of the day, Lord, when they say, when they say to us, why do you say Jesus? Jesus is the only way. And we're going to say, Lord, it's not our opinion. This is not my own opinion. I'm repeating the words of our Lord and Savior, the only one who survived death. That's the point of bringing this message. So encourage us, lift us up, strengthen us, Father, so that when we leave here today, we can empower to walk with you and to reach out to the lost who need to hear it. Bless our people, protect them in every way, and continue to be with them as they come back to worship with you week after week. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen, Lord.